I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and you know, guys, I gotta tell you, as a podcaster, what I've noticed is that generally when we, when podcasters start their show, there are certain things that they want to talk about, you know? Maybe there's not a specific plan as to when that's going to happen, but there are things that they start their show knowing damn good and well the day's going to come when I get a chance to talk about this. Not sure when it's going to happen. Day's going to come. Well, today is one of those days for me because today I get to talk about some Spider-Man funny books, but not just any Spider-Man comics. No, no. Today, I'm going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man number 224. And you might be asking yourself, But Magnus, but Magnus, what's so fucking special about Amazing Spider-Man number 224? I'm glad you asked. Basically, what it comes down to is this. This is the beginning, this issue. Amazing Spider-Man 224, this is the... Well, I don't think this is like the official beginning of the Roger Stern run on Spider-Man, but this is what a lot of Spider-Man fans consider to be the moment that the Roger Stern run went from being good to being great. He did a couple of issues of, I believe it was Spectacular Spider-Man before this, and they were pretty good, don't get me wrong, but this is where things really start cooking, you know? So, two or three issues, I guess, to warm up, and here we are. Right here in Amazing Spider-Man. And so, that's really the the idea here. Now, like I say, this is one of those things that I've wanted to talk about for a really fucking long time. And the reason for that is because it's been so long since I actually read the Stern run on Spider-Man that... It's strange to think about it, but it's like I've retained very little of it at this point, you know? And, you know, sometimes comics are like that, you know? I mean, 
I don't think there's anybody in the world who's read and then retained everything that he's read, you know? So I don't really think I'm all that unique here, but basically what I'm saying is it's not going to be quite like reading this again for the first, or rather reading this for the first time because I'm going to be reading it again. But I do kind of get a little bit of a treat here in that it's not exactly fresh in my mind. A lot of stuff I've just kind of blanked out. And so now this is a good chance for me to... How shall I put this? Refresh myself, I suppose. And this, like I say, is something that I wanted to do for so fucking long now. And now I finally get a chance to do it. And, you know, there are... Like every... Well, not every character, but a lot of characters, they have... If they're really lucky, like the big iconic characters, they've got a lot of different runs that you can go back to and enjoy and appreciate and dig through and all that. And, I mean, Superman, Batman, and definitely Spider-Man are kind of famous for having, in my opinion, amazing high-quality runs. And the Roger Stern run is something that I've wanted to talk about on this show. Guys, I kid you not, literally since day one. You know, and obviously you can't talk about everything that you want to talk about on day one. You kind of have to build up to certain things. And... I finally have a chance to talk about this, and so I'm going for it. So, and so, I guess without any further ado, this is Amazing Spider-Man number 224. Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. Cover artist or cover artists are Ed Hannigan, John Romita Jr., and Bob Layton. Writer is Roger Stern. Penciler is John Romita Jr., Inker is Pablo Marcus. Colorist is Glennis Ween. Letterer is Joe Rosen. Editor is Tom DeFalco. And the summary of the story goes a little something, something like this. Peter's hanging around his apartment doing exercise when Aunt May interrupts him by calling on the phone. Which is what old people do. They interrupt important shit a lot. Anyway, so... Aunt May calls Peter on the phone, right, and invites him out for dinner on Saturday night. Peter says he'll be there, then hops out the window in full Spider-Man gear and swings around the city for a little while. In order to satisfy part of this issue's action quotient, Spider-Man just so happens to come across a bank robbery in progress. So he beats the holy fucking shit out of the bank robbers, leaves them webbed to their own getaway car as the police roll up, and then retrieves his camera which was set to automatically snap pictures of the whole episode as it progressed. Elsewhere, Adrian Toomes is in the Bellevue Hospital in order to rehabilitate following injur uh, injuries he suffered during his last battle with Spider-Man. There he meets Nathan Lubinsky, Aunt May's boyfriend. They're both in the hospital together, and so they decide to take advantage of the, hospital, uh, the hospital's gym for their physical therapy. Nathan doesn't realize that Adrian is in reality the vulture. He inadvertently inspires Adrian, who's, who, who was a little bit depressed before, and so Adrian uses some of the electronic equipment to build a set of temporary wings and uses them to escape the hospital. As all that's going on, Peter's hanging around the Daily Bugle office developing the photographs he took from that morning's bank robbery. He gets interrupted, though, when J. Jonah Jameson barges into the darkroom. The act of doing so royally fucks up Peter's photos. They're permanently ruined now. 
Jonah almost goes full Arlie Ermy by telling Peter that he's a royal good-for-nothing fuck-up, but and the first and last words out of his filthy sewer had better be sir and other kind of obnoxious bullshit like that. But at that moment, Robbie rushes into the scene to provide some much-needed exposition. He says, jumping Judas on a pogo stick. The vultures escaped from police custody. Shit's about to get real around here now, motherfuckers. And stuff like that. Meanwhile, the vulture embarks on a crime spree that goes on for a few days while he uses the Restwell nursing home as his headquarters. His thinking goes that nobody would ever think to look for him there. As he's hanging around, he also befriends Nathan Lubinsky and participates in Nathan's poker parties. Peter swings by on Saturday night to meet up with Aunt May and Nathan at, Re at Restwell before heading out together for dinner. He drops in on Nathan's poker game, and there he meets Adrian. Peter recognizes him instantly as the vulture. Adrian realizes that Peter's onto him, so he forces Peter into, a, uh, into his room, where he slips something in Peter's drink and goes full Bill Cosby on him. Actually, no. He attempts to kidnap Peter, but gets interrupted when Aunt May swings by to ask him if he's seen Peter anywhere around. Adrian has to find a polite way of telling Aunt May to go piss up a rope. As all that's going on, Parker puts on his Spider-Man gear and attacks the Vulture. They battle all through the Restwell nursing home and kick each other's asses around. Try though he might, though, Spider-Man just can't get the upper hand over the Vulture. In the middle of their little showdown, the Vulture grabs, at random, an innocent bystander and threatens to kill him if Spider-Man doesn't back the fuck off. And I mean right now. Nathan, it turns out, is the one that Adrian grabbed out of the group, and so he gripes at Adrian and asks if he's lost his fucking mind and demands to know why it is that Adrian would kill his only friend in the world. This snaps the vulture back to his senses a little bit, and so he tosses Nathan aside and hauls balls out of the rest home. Spider-Man stands there quietly for a moment before going full Luke Skywalker for a second and thinks to himself that there must still be some good in the vulture after all. In any event, Spider-Man peels off his outfit, puts on his regular clothes, and meets up with Aunt May and Nathan as Peter Parker, where the end ends happily and the happy trio enjoy their happy ending by going out to dinner, after which a happy ending ensues. Until next month, that is. The end. So, what did I think? Well, like I say, Roger Stern's run on Spider-Man is one of those, I would almost want to go so far as to say, universally adored runs on Spider-Man that come around sometimes where, to the best of my knowledge, it's truly a matter of no controversy whatsoever that this is classic stuff. And honestly, I mean, as I read through all of this, it's just fun. You know, Peter's luck is all bad. And he does score some victories, but he has enough setbacks, I guess, to make the victories that he does get. See, I don't want to say worthwhile, but it's like it somehow means more. I don't know. It, it's it's it, It's hard to describe, but honestly, I think the temptation that a lot of writers fall into when it comes to Spider-Man is that the guy just never gets a break. And when you think about it, that's not 
really true. Spider-Man, or at least Peter, he does lose a lot, but that's tempered with the occasional victory. Now, maybe it's a major victory. <clears throat> maybe it's a minor victory. But he does win sometimes. And so anyway, I've been yammering and running my mouth here for several minutes. I'm actually too lazy to check. Please stand by while I take a few drags off of my e-cig and then get a drink off my Coke. One moment, please. Anyway, now to get into the issue proper, though, you know, page one, you know, it's kind of funny that sometimes in life, you come across a piece of art where it literally summarizes everything that this character is all about, you know? And page one on this story is a good example of what I mean. It's Peter, who's got a chair balanced on two legs. He's balancing himself in partial Spider-Man gear on top of that. He's balanced upside down, and he's talking on the phone with the phone cord stretching clear, like, all the way across the room, right? And... I don't know why, but that just seems like a very Spider-Man kind of image to me, you know? Like, a guy like Spider-Man, I mean, this is the way that he lives his life. This is how he does things. You know, he really... It's not so much that he's got, like, ADD or something like that. He just... He, he can't focus. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that he does. You know, he'll talk on the phone to somebody while he's clinging to a ceiling or something like that, you know, or just fucking whatever it is that he's doing. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I just like this image. Now, I'm going to be real with you guys, all right? Yes, this is drawn by John Romita Jr., but we're not talking about latter-day John Romita Jr., where he does this sort of scratchy, weird Frank Miller something or other. This is a lot earlier in in Romita's career. This, I don't think I ever actually said so, but the cover date on this thing is January of 1982. So this is, I would say this is fairly early on in Romita's career. And he's, it's, it's kind of weird. He's trying to find his own voice on the one hand. On the other hand, he's... Somewhat, not too much, but he's somewhat emulating John Romita Sr.'s style. Now, let's face it. If John Romita Sr. is your dad and you learned how to draw from him, at least to start with, you're going to have an art style very similar to his. It's just inescapable. So the way I choose to interpret this is that what we're seeing is a John Romita Sr influence. It's not necessarily meant to be a ripoff. It's just that, you know, what what's the fucker supposed to do? I mean, this is John Romita Sr. is this guy's kind of formative teacher when it comes to art. You know, what else was anybody expecting, you know? So anyway, now people can say what they want, you know, that some of the lighting and the shadows and whatnot is a little bit fucked up. But nevertheless, like I say, we got to cut him some slack. This is still early on in his career. And frankly, you know, just in terms of the work, 
you know, like just in terms of like the basic line style. I actually kind of like this more than I do this newer stuff that John Romita Jr. is doing these days. I know that royally pisses artists off whenever you say that, man, I really liked your old stuff. Why do you suck now? And that, admittedly, that is a kind of dick thing to say to somebody, but damn it, dude. I mean, you know, there was a, when there was a time that you were good and fucking you're not good anymore, I don't think it's, I mean, yeah, on the one hand, it is kind of a dick thing to say, but I mean, on the other hand, it's kind of understandable, isn't it? Anyway, I mean, I would never in a million years say that to somebody, but I, well, fuck it, whatever, I'm digging a hole here. All right, so anyway, that's page one. And like I say, this is just, I don't know if this is the quintessential Spider-Man image, but it's a quintessential Spider-Man image, put it that way. And so page two is basically just uh, Peter and Aunt May, they're gabbing away on the phone and they're making their plans. And basically this is really the purpose of, especially panel two on page two, is just planting the seed in your mind for the conclusion of this story. Why is it that Peter ever went to the rest home to begin with? This is why, you know? So there you go. And I'm actually going to be revisiting that in just a couple of minutes, but whatever. Peter finishes up the conversation with Aunt May and he just kind of springs across the room. And again, I just like this type of visual of Peter just bouncing off of walls and off, off the floor, off the ceiling. You know, Spider-Man is a very kinetic character. And what I like about John Romita Jr.'s work on Spider-Man, at least in this, I guess, this juncture of his career, he knew that he needed to show Spider-Man always, I don't want to say necessarily always in motion, but always doing something Spider-Man-y, you know? If it's hanging off a ceiling, then it's hanging off a ceiling. If it's balancing on a chair that itself is balanced on two legs, then it's balancing on a chair that is itself balanced on two legs. If it's, I don't know, fucking bouncing off the floor, then it's bouncing off the floor. Fucking just whatever it is. He's not just sitting on the couch talking on the phone. There's a visual angle to everything that Spider-Man does that isn't really there for Peter. It never goes away when Spider-Man's around. And I, I just kind of like that. It's a different visual language for this character who's the same character, but he's wearing different clothes. And so, damn it, now we have to use a different visual language. Anyway, I just dig it, you know? It's, to me, it shows that Romita kind of had his thinking cap on when he was, when he was doing all of this work. He might have been, he might have been new to comics at the time, but he wasn't an amateur, does that make sense? Anyway. So, getting into page three, it's basically Spider-Man. He's swinging all across town. He comes across the bank robbery, and then that's pretty much it for page three. Shit's on, right? Page four, Spider-Man beats the piss out of the bank robbers, dangles one of them off a building, and basically just really freaks the guy out until he passes out. That's pretty much the end of the their little tete-a-tete. And, you know, here's the thing. I mean, the... This is really just a quick sort of, I can't really say three pages, but well, I guess, no, I guess it's, I guess it's three pages. You know, the bank robbers are doing their thing without Spider-Man around on page three. Spider-Man shows up on page four. 
he dispenses with a problem on page five, and then he get, he gets back to it, right? And it's just a fun, efficient, compact sort of mini little action sequence. And if this was a movie, this would probably be where the movie started. And then Peter would go back to his apartment and, you know, change into his... If I could just do something or other at his apartment, that's when Aunt May calls. But no, this is a comic, so you can actually wait a couple of pages to get to this. And actually, I kind of dig that, you know? That works for me. So, from there, we, we move over to uh, the Restwell Nursing Home. Well, actually, this isn't Restwell, is it? This is uh, actually Manhattan's Bellevue Hospital, where this pretty much is the sequence where Adrian and Nathan basically get acquainted with one another and i guess like i don't know if if we were necessarily at a point in american storytelling and american fiction where old people always had to be portrayed as strong vibrant and always on on their a game you can't keep them down and all this stuff i don't know if we were like officially like four alarm into that era just yet but damn it dude we're getting there because I'm not trying to sound like I'm down on old people or anything like that, but let's be realistic, guys. I mean, it's kind of a cliche now that every time you see an old person on TV, they're jogging or they're lifting weights or something like that. I mean, it's just getting fucking old, all right? Pardon the pun. But anyway, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's not obnoxious here, but it is, at this point, you know, with all the stuff that's happening these days in movies, books, comics, TV, fucking whatever, all media... It is getting a little bit aggravating now, you know, it, I mean, it, it, it's kind of strange to think, you know, this whole thing about old people always being, you know, youthful and vibrant and on top of things and energetic, you know, has even come to affect Aunt fucking May. That's how far this cliche has gone now, guys. All right. So there's something to think about there. Anyway, so you've got... Uh, Adrian, and you've got Nathan, they're just hanging around, kind of bullshitting with each other a little bit, and like I say, I mean, it's not quite to the point of being obnoxious, but it is a little bit uh, annoying. This whole, you can't boss me around, I may be old, but I can still whoop your ass, you young whippersnapper. And just fucking, just bullshit like that, so. Another drink off my Coke. But this does inspire Adrian to, I suppose, not give up, you know, basically get back in the game, which is maybe not the kind of encouragement that Nathan wanted to give, but nevertheless, fucking he gave it. So Adrian builds his, builds his temporary wings and zooms off. And as he does so, I mean, there's this kind of glory shot it's on page nine, panel three, where you've got the vulture and he's kind of swooping all around the the gym, the hospital gym and everything, and saying out loud to the orderly that just barged in, Tombs, there's no one here by that name. There's only the vulture. And... Guys, let's just cut the shit. I mean, these wings look so fucking rickety. There's just... I cannot... I cannot convince myself that he would actually be able to use these wings to fly. Now, I know what you're thinking, all right? The 
entire shtick of the vulture is kind of technologically impossible to begin with anyway. So why are we splitting hairs over stuff that he's able to cobble together in a gym that doesn't even look all that good in the first place? And my answer to that is nothing. I got nothing. All right. But <clears throat> for some reason, I don't know why, but when I look at the vulture's usual wings, there's a veneer of plausibility to them, at least enough, that I can convince myself that, yeah, you could probably use these things to fly. In a comic book, that is. But even in even with, like, fuzzy, kind of retarded comic book logic and comic book science, these wings just... I'm sorry, they, there's just no way these would get the job done. They just look rickety and, you know, they're mostly a wire frame and it's just... Ugh. It's just weak, weak sauce. Weak sauce. Anyway, so getting into page 10 here, we've got Peter. He's in the dark room trying to develop the pictures, and then, whoops, J. Jonah Jameson barges in and basically completely fucking ruins Peter's pictures. And the thing is, The narrative needs this to happen because we need to show Peter losing at least once in a while, right? But I kind of find it a little hard to believe that this is the kind of darkroom that a major news... In fact, the premier news publication in New York City would use, you know? Back in the days of film, when people actually used film, there were other ways of building a darkroom. You know, and basically what it comes to, what it comes down to is this. You can build the dark room and then kind of construct a sort of circular entrance into the dark room and the doorway, you don't really open the door, you rotate the door, right? And so this little opening, you, you just spin the circle around, the opening comes, you step in to sort of like an antechamber, I guess. Spin the circle again, now from inside. And <clears throat> then from there, you step into the dark room. That way, the dark room always stays dark. There's no way regular light can ever get into the dark room because the only opening in the entire... Uh, that, that connects the, the dark room... I guess to the main office is an antechamber that only has one one opening that's either facing the main office or it's facing the dark room. But the two are never connected, right? The reason I know that such a thing is possible is because we fucking had one at my high school. And so if if a high school newspaper and a piece of shit high school podunk town Texas 20 years ago could have something like this. I find it difficult to believe that the premier newspaper in all of the Marvel universe didn't have something similar 30 years ago. It's just fucking impossible for me to believe that. But like I say, this isn't supposed to be rational. The way that it's supposed to work is that is that somebody, ideally Jonah, finds a way to accidentally piss in Peter Parker's cornflakes. And that's really the point of this scene, so I go with it. But nevertheless, this is just... It's one of those things that is completely impossible. I cannot convince myself that something like this could ever happen, you know? 
Or shit, you don't even need to be as sophisticated as I just said with my high school's darkroom. Just a, a double door will do it. And have a rule in place. The doors are never open at the same time. You open one, it had better be because the other one is closed. Put it that way. So, anyway. I am way overthinking this. Anyway, so, moving on. We see the vulture instigate a a little bit of a crime spree. And I want to be careful how I say... Well, actually, fuck it. I'm not going to be careful in how I say this because Roger Stern wasn't careful in the way that he wrote it. And John Romita Jr. wasn't careful in the way he drew it. So I'm just going to say it. Basically, the vulture steals a set of gems. You know, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, all that kind of bullshit. From some... Jewish jewelers. I mean, let's just call them what they are. These men manifestly are Jews, and they have very kind of stereotypical Jew dialogue and Jew accents and all of that. And I kind of have to wonder, you know, could you put a scene like this in a comic book today? I mean, I, I don't know. I think that somebody may actually decide to scream bloody murder over that, you know? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's... What I've noticed is that people, they don't mind, I guess, fictional representations of racial stereotypes when they're drawn, but people get real skittish about the words, the accents, and all of that sort of stuff. And so when one of these guys says... I don't know. He calls one of them a nuge. And then later he says, Oig Jovalt, and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't think people would much appreciate it if this were scripted like this today. Even though, guys, I've met Jew, uh, Jewish jewelers, and this really is the way that they talk. But apparently we're just not allowed to comment upon that. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's weird. It's fucked up. I don't get it, but there you go. Anyway, so the vulture robs them, whoever they are, wherever they're from, he robs them. And this begins a montage of the vulture's crime spree all through the city of New York, where he's basically tearing shit up everywhere he goes. And intentionally or not, he's always a step ahead of Spider-Man who just, for whatever reason, cannot catch up with the guy. And so... Ultimately, Spider-Man decides to give up. That takes us to Saturday, where Spider-Man meets, or I should say Peter Parker, meets up with Aunt May at the Restwell Nursing Home. And here on page 16 is where he kind of barges into uh, Nathan's little uh, poker tournament here. And there he comes eyeball to eyeball with Adrian. And Peter basically makes him right away. He knows exactly who this guy is. And Adrian, not being a moron, realizes that and pulls a gun. Well, he doesn't pull a gun, but he points a gun that he's got inside of his coat pocket, points the gun at Peter, tells him, get moving, and whacks him upside the head once they get to, once they get back to, uh, to Nathan's room. And it's actually not really clear what Nathan was planning to do, but whatever it was. Oh, well, actually, I take that back. No, I, it says it right here. My apologies. 
He put on his vulture. He puts on his vulture gear and is basically going to drop Peter from several thousand feet in the air. And it kind of makes you wonder, dude, how exactly were you expecting to get away with that? I mean, people are going to see you do it. Odds are they'll see you land. I don't know. Just kind of makes you wonder. Another sip off of my uh, Coke there. Anyway, so moving right along, Aunt May provides enough of a distraction for the vulture that uh, Peter puts on a Spider-Man outfit. And like I said before, Peter and the vulture basically take turns beating the piss out of each other. And it's kind of weird that in a couple of panels, not many, but just here and there, you do get a little, or at least I get a little bit of a of a Steve Ditko flavor. Like page 19, panel 2, that just looks like a very Ditko kind of panel to me, more so than John Romita Sr., which if, if we were talking about any other artist, I wouldn't even mention that, but being as we're talking about John Romita Jr., that's kind of interesting, don't you think? Sorry for all these pauses, but geez, it's a, for some reason I got a really dry throat today. Sorry about that. Anyway, so at one point, Spider-Man is sort of piggybacking on the vault uh, on the Vulture's back, and they crash through a wall into a hallway, and they resume beating the shit out of each other for a while, before the Vulture grabs Nathan, and basically tries to hold him hostage while he makes his escape before he realizes, hey, this is Nathan. I can't hurt this guy. So he just shoves Nathan right at Spider-Man, and there's this expression... Uh, let's see. Yeah, um, on page 21, panel 4, Nathan just has this holy fucking shit look on his face, like, oh my god, what the fuck's going on, as he gets shoved right at Spider-Man. I mean, this this is a look, guys, of absolute fucking panic, you know? And honestly, I would Nathan really be that panicked? Well, I don't know, but at least, eh, I don't know. It's just like I say, the thing to keep in mind at the very least is that this is the onset of John Romita Jr.'s career. So we just need to give him a pass because the perspective here, the perspective just looks a little bit weird. Now it could it could very well be that because of the fact that Nathan's kind of confined to a wheelchair and maybe that's just playing tricks with the perspective, you know, because he's sort of facing the camera, so to speak, the camera in quotation marks, but it just looks this panel just looks really odd to me for some reason and I really don't know why, but it's like something here is out of proportion or the perspective is off, or something. I don't know, but something about this panel just seems a little fucked up. So, whatever. Spider-Man catches him. At that exact moment, the vulture dives out the window and makes his escape. There will be other battles, Spider-Man. This isn't over yet. And just kind of very comic booky type of dialogue that, let's face it, nobody talks that way in real life, but fucking this isn't real life. This is a comic, so... Fuck you. But anyway, so then from there, page 22, the happy trio basically decide to head out and, and get dinner, which is a little bit of a surprise to Aunt May because 
You know, she said all the bullshit that's just gone on and you're thinking with your stomach. You are such a man. Oh, yeah, here it is. Actually, the exact quote. <gasps> Nathan Lubinsky, sometimes I think you live for your stomach. So saith Aunt May. And... That is pretty much that. And like I say, this is just a fun issue, solid, well-written. Uh, the pacing, can't say a word about it. It's This is just fun. This is a fun issue. And I don't know. It's just... This to me is... It's kind of funny to think. On the one hand, this is not exactly the best Spider-Man comic book that Roger Stern has ever written. There is better stuff yet to come. This I do affirm. But even right here, I mean, like, right at the moment that most people tend to agree that this is when the Roger Stern run kind of begins in earnest, it was so fucking good to begin with anyway, you know? Anyway, I just, I dig this issue, tons of fun, love it, and I just, I can't say enough, I, I can't say enough good things about it. This is just fun comics. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me in this segment, so... Be right back after these messages. And now, a dramatic reading. Sorry, I ain't sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, paws. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up. Put them hands high. Wave it in his face. Tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying? Now you got to see me wilding. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got another issue of Spider-Man that I want to talk about here. This is The Amazing Spider-Man, number 225. So, basically, it's the very next issue after the one that I just talked about. And, you know, I gotta tell you, it only just now occurred to me that I talked about The Amazing Spider-Man, number 224, in the last segment. Here in episode... 224. 
which I must say was completely unplanned, but nevertheless, that is what happened, and so here we are, and now I'm stuck dealing with the aftermath of that. So there's really no deeper meaning to that. I just wanted to toss that out there and see what comes back to me. But anyway, this is Amazing Spider-Man number 225, and I gotta tell you, this cover is a little bit goofy. It's basically a giant picture of this issue's villain, which is to say the Fool Killer. And I do believe that the clinical description for the facial expression that he's making is batshit fucking nuts. And as we shall see as this issue, as this issue progresses, I do believe that is a rather fair assessment of the Fool Killer, but all in good time. Anyway, so the cover basically is a bunch of, I guess, I can't tell if this is supposed to be, like, how we're supposed to interpret this. I mean, is this like Spider-Man swinging around on the cover and he's just bouncing all over the place as kind of is Spider-Man's thing? Or is the fool killer seeing literally Spider-Man everywhere he goes? He's surrounded by Spider-Men, or what? I have no fucking idea what this cover is supposed to be saying exactly, so... Yeah, here we are. Anyway, the... this is, Like I say, Amazing Spider-Man, number 225, writer is Roger Stern. Artist, or penciler at least, is John Romita Jr. Inker is Bob Wyacek. Letterer is Joe Rosen. Editor is Tom DeFalco. Colorist is Glennis Wine, and Editor-in-Chief is Jim Shooter. Summary of the story is as follows. Lou Caldwell and his partner Sam are two FBI agents who investigate unsolved cases on their own, seeking a promotion. Now they're after Greg Salinger, the one they suspect is the second incarnation of the Fool Killer, but the Fool Killer sent Lou a letter before this issue started, announcing that he plans to kill him, which is pretty much what happens right away. Caldwell and Sam are both goners by the end of page three. Elsewhere, Peter's lecturing a class of chemistry 101 at Empire State University, and when he finishes, Greg Salinger appears and, tell, and tells him his administrative trouble is just unsolved. Basically, he's having problems making his financial aid payments because of the mailroom, problems that are happening in the mailroom. He's doing everything that he's supposed to be doing. The mailroom is simply not doing what they are supposed to be doing. Pay attention to that because we will be revisiting that shortly. Peter tells Greg that it's a problem a lot of students are having and the dean wants to fix this as soon as possible. As a matter of fact, the dean has ordered the... the the uh, registry office uh, officer, whose name is Harvey McNamara, to finish all admissions in a rush, and so Harvey's spending the night in his office at Empire State University. There he gets attacked by the Fool Killer and escapes death thanks only to Spider-Man's timely intervention. But the Fool Killer escapes and returns to his hideout. There he remembers in a flashback his past jail times in company of Richard Rory, who told him about the first fool killer. The evening after, or I should say the following evening, 
Spider-Man meets Greg Salinger and worries about the fact that this boy makes his... I should say Peter meets Greg Salinger and worries about the fact that this boy makes his spider sense activate and deactivate at random. Soon, he talks with Deborah Whitman, who moments earlier had been insulted by Greg. He called her, specifically a fool, which made Peter suspect that Greg might be the fool killer. His suspicion gets confirmed when he meets the fool killer in the mailroom of Empire State University, where moments earlier, Peter, uh, or I should say Greg, had told Peter that one letter he'd, uh, he'd sent never arrived to his destination, and that, and in fact, may have been lost, as is fairly common for the idiots who work in the mailroom. Spider-Man and the fool killer duke it out for a little while, but the fool killer comes out on top and makes his escape. A short time later... He runs into an old homeless woman in an alley who tells him that only a fool would go gunning for Spider-Man. The fool killer agrees and tries to commit suicide, but Spider-Man stops him, and that's that. The end. Now, guys, obviously I didn't put tons and tons of effort into this summary, and the reason for that is because this is a little bit of a weird story. It's just... I mean, on the one hand, I must say that, you know, the fool killer... It's tempting to say that this guy is not exactly the greatest Spider-Man villain of all time, you know? And I, I don't think there's really any, any denying that, on the one hand. On the other hand, though, you know, a guy like the Fool Killer whose self-assigned mission is to go around killing stupid people wherever he finds them, this may be insensitive on my part, but I gotta tell you, part of me thinks this guy needs to be on the fucking payroll. You know, basically, I mean, can you imagine how smoothly the DMV would run if they lived in fear, like genuine concern of the fool killer paying them a visit because of what idiots they are? Now, to be fair, the fool killer's stated motive, I suppose, is that he basically goes after fools, which he defines as anybody with no poetry in their soul. So what I guess that means is if you're a mathematician or a mechanical engineer or anything like that, you may be in, in deep shit, you know? But his actions basically target people who are complete fucking failures. These are people who are so fucking incompetent that it truly is a mystery unto the ages how exactly it is that they've managed to keep a job this whole time. And I think we all know the answer to that. Stupid people in society gravitate towards jobs that have absolutely, positively no oversight, no expectations, no consequences. Unless, of course, you live in the Marvel Universe at this exact moment, and then you might have to pay through the nose when the fool killer comes knocking, wanting to know just why it is you're such a fuck-up. So, yeah, on the one hand, the guy is certifiable. You know, there, there's really no denying that. But like I say, part of me thinks this guy needs to be on the fucking payroll, you know? So, I don't know. Your actual mileage may vary. This is just... It's a kind of a fun, one-and-done sort of adventure story. And I must say, this is not exactly Roger Stern's high point when it comes to Spider-Man. This is just another sort of a sort of weird 
goofy Spider-Man story wherein he battles it out with a weird, goofy supervillain. It's just weird and kind of goofy. So, like I say, not exactly the greatest Spider-Man story there's ever been. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, there is, I guess on a, on a more visceral level, part of us, we wouldn't want to be the fool killer, but I think we'd kind of like having the fool killer around. So, I don't know. And I guess this kind of speaks to one of the, one of the things that the Marvel Universe does better than the DC universe is that guys there are some seriously weird fucking people out there in the world and I mean weird you know like mentally deranged weird you know it was just last night I just kind of fell ass backwards into how or not so much how, but I guess why Domino's Pizza made the decision to not do Avoid the Noid commercials anymore. And it's a pretty fucking dark and bloody story, you know? Basically, some guy whose last name is Noid got annoyed by all of those Avoid the Noid, car uh, not cartoons, commercials. And he basically attacked a Domino's Pizza restaurant near his home took some people hostage and uh, demanded, you know, free pizza. And uh, he also made some other uh, hostage demands and all this other stuff before he quietly surrendered to the police. He was carried off to the loony bin and then he killed himself a few years after he was taken into custody, right? That's a pretty fucking sad and dark story. But people like that, they do exist and they are out there and you never know when one of them may go off the deep end about something. And that kind of lone nut sort of thing isn't... It's not that DC Comics historically can't do that kind of thing. It's just that that's not really their territory, you know? It And it's technically... I mean, I guess it's not really Marvel's territory either. But it's of a piece, I suppose, with what the Marvel Universe can be, you know? And... I mean, I don't know. It's, like I said, I mean, this is not exactly the most gripping Spider-Man story there's ever been, but it does kind of have that real-world dimension to it where, you know, it's not that something like this could happen. It's that stuff like this happens all the fucking time. And sometimes the the outcome of that stuff is, it's kind of fucking dark, guys. You know, I mean, people die. I mean, you know, when these when these maniacs go off the deep end about something or other, they could hurt somebody, you know? So, I mean, there is a sort of a real-world dimension to this. Now, don't misunderstand me. That does That's not, like, a major part of this story or anything like that. I don't think Roger Stern even really comments upon that, that, you know, we need to be more sensitive to the mentally deranged and stuff like that. He's not really making that argument. I am, you know? And... I kind of like, you know, in relation to that, I kind of like the conclusion of this story where, you know, victory doesn't come from Spider-Man beating the shit out of the fool killer. It comes from, well, at least initially, it comes from Peter and just his presence calming Greg down. And then ultimately, Spider-Man taking the fool killer, not to jail, but to the loony bin, I assume, you know? He doesn't beat the snot out of him and leave him 
uh, leave him in police custody. That's not what happens here. You know, and in these types of crisis situations, you know, a lot of police negotiators will say that, you know what, sometimes what a perp needs is to get shot, all right? That's what needs to happen here. But more often than not, if there's a way to reason with the perp, that's actually the bigger, better, and longer-lasting victory, you know? And that's more or less the type of ending that we see here. Spider-Man doesn't beat the shit out of the fool killer, nor does he let the fool killer take his own life. Spider-Man intervenes, saves the fool killer's life in the immediate sense of stopping him from killing himself, but he may have saved his life in other ways too, you know? And I think that's a kind of a neat thing, you know? Like I say, not the greatest Spider-Man story there's ever been. But I think there's a lot to be said sometimes for suing for peace and then getting somebody mental and psychological help as opposed to beating the shit out of them with batarangs and karate kicks and then leaving them in police custody where God only knows what might happen to them, you know? So, like I say, not the greatest Spider-Man story that I've ever read. It's not the greatest Spider-Man story that you'll ever read. It's not even all that good a, a, a Roger Stern Spider-Man story com compared to his usual benchmark. I'm just saying that there is, for as weird and goofy as this story is, there is merit to it, you know? There's a lot of... There's at least two... There are at least two or three good ideas going on in this issue. And at the end of the day... Isn't that about the most you can ask for from a comic book, that there be two or three good ideas bouncing around in there somewhere? So, anyway, I think that's pretty much it for me in this segment. In fact, I think that's actually pretty much it for me in this episode. So, basically, I don't know when my day is going to come. I just don't know when. I'm going to come back to Roger Stern's run on Amazing Spider-Man. And this isn't going to be like an ongoing fixture of my show, but just once in a while, I'm going to try sprinkling in a few, uh, at least one or two issues of the Stern run on Spider-Man, because I really do enjoy this run. It's not necessarily my favorite, you understand, but it's really fucking good. And I'd like to be able to run, uh, to get through an entire run of some character or another, or some book, or just whatever. And this, I think, is actually kind of an interesting little era, I suppose, in Spider-Man's history. I think this is this is uh, a, a pretty good choice, all things considered. So, I don't know when, but at some point, I am going to talk more about the Roger Stern run on Amazing Spider-Man. So, I just, I guess, keep an ear out for that. But for right now, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
30 years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. 
Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Yeah.